40 days to mark our road to Easter, kind of modeled after, after Jesus' time in the wilderness uh, being tempted, which we'll kind of talk about a little bit later on in this talk. It's 40 days. And the hope is that during this time we change, we seek God, we seek transformation, but we do it not from a place necessarily of our own strength, but do it looking to be dependent on God, perhaps in new ways, in quite new ways for us. Uh, one of the words that is very important to the season of Lent is repentance. This simple phrase, this simple word, repentance. And this Lent at ECV, we're going deeper around that word. And that might seem a bit intimidating because this word repent can often smack of judgmentalism, kind of being judgmental. We see this word more often with hateful street preachers, perhaps in more fundamental circles, often highlighting a handful of issues, as if our repentance is limited to changing a few behaviors in someone else. The finger is pointed outwards there, not inwards. It's not about, limit, it's not about having a wholehearted way of changing one's own life. So why spend 40 days on that? Perhaps like the Christian author G.K. Chesterton says, repentance, much like other parts of the Christian life, has not been tried and found wanting, but rather found difficult and left untried. Maybe there's things about repentance that we simply just haven't really known or done yet or experienced a freedom around. Maybe there's more to this word and more to God's wisdom in letting it be part of this season in the church but more than the season in the church, part of our lives, part of this faith that we're invited to think about. So why are we so tempted to simply tell others to repent, to tell others to change, or to tell no one, even ourselves? And I think the answer has a lot to do with lies, the lies we believe about God, the lies we believe about others, the lies that we believe about ourselves. Thankfully, repentance has a lot to do with shaking off lies. Having the lies that maybe ensnare us, not stick. Maybe not quite bounce off, but just not be the same kind of damaging lies. The meaning of repentance in Hebrew, the ancient language of scripture, is turn. As in like a physical turn. Like turn your body. And in the Greek, the word is metanoia, changing your mind. It's not mere mental ascent. It's not cold intellectual calculation. It's a whole body, whole life turning or changing. And even like we talked about for the, the sermon on the, the sermon series of the greatest commandment, first of all, mind probably has a lot to do with heart, soul, strength. The Greek hints that maybe this just begins with a new way of thinking, and then it goes deeper from there. That's why we're interested in this word repent. That's why we're interested in what it could mean to change our minds. That's the sermon series we're in this Lent. Change your mind, embracing the truth of God's goodness. When lies are all around us, for others, for ourselves, and again for God, what can we do? Embrace God's truth. The truth, not just that God is real, but that God is good. Lies, in fact, are rather insidious things. They start off one way, perhaps close to the truth, but then they change in rather ordinary but quite striking ways. Has anyone here ever played the game Telephone? 
You know that things can start off one way and then end completely differently. Lies like that, lies act like that, and it's a progression that we're going to follow in our series. Lies can start with something as seemingly true as, I should be enough. But then it can change. Because of that, I can't be vulnerable. Actually, you know what? I'm fine. Wait, I'm not fine, but it's their fault. You guys recognizing some of this? Never mind, I'll just work harder, forget about them, I'll just be better, I'll get it right this time. I guess what you see is what you get. There's nothing more than this. Death is the end. So, okay, it gets emo quick, I admit, it's real. But this is often the work of sin. It affects might be slight at first, but death is actually at the heart of sin. And that's where we're headed, thinking about how these small little lies can grow bigger to the point where death is actually at work in the lies. And unfortunately, death is at work in us. Self-sufficiency becomes overwork and burnout. Burnout causes isolation. Isolation brings, breeds contempt and blame. Blame breeds self-justification and division. Self-justification, division, bring cynicism and a lack of hope. And by the time you're there, cynicism and lack of hope, it's pretty hard to believe in the surprise of resurrection, right? This is bad stuff. It's as if we need to, to turn from it, to change our mind about it, to change our mind about the lies that so easily ensnare us. That turning is Jesus' call to us in this particular season, but his call to us always. Jesus, the one who comes not just with truth, but the one who is truth himself. It's him who comes into our lives to reveal us to the truth of God's goodness, to invite us to embrace it wholeheartedly with all of our lives. Not just thinking differently, but becoming different through this revelation of what God is showing us through the life of Jesus. That wholehearted turn, that wholehearted change, that's what we want in this series, in this time, today, for the Holy Spirit to anchor us in that work. And I want to pray for us now that we would be anchored by the Holy Spirit, because without the Holy Spirit, we can't do any of this. We can't change our minds. We often get stuck with lies. They're things that stick to us. So we need some power from God, some power from the Holy Spirit to get unstuck and to see maybe for the first time how God is good in specific ways that we're struggling with, specific ways that we can embrace, particularly in the season of Lent. Let me pray for us. God, help us go deeper on our journey together. Would it be through you, God, and the work of your Spirit, that we would be changed, that we would understand repentance as a gift, that it would even seem like easy in some ways, like desirable, and that you, God, would come into our hearts to woo us where we're tempted by lies, where we're struggling with lies. Help us, God.
In Jesus' name, amen. The first lie of our time together is I should be enough. This is similar but quite different from I am enough, which is, uh, you know, point taken, a very powerful statement if you know where your worth comes from and if it's not dependent on effort. Oftentimes when I hear like the pop song, like I don't know why I'm targeting Kelly Clarkson for some reason in my mind, but like the I am enough like song, it's not really about like anything that deep. No disrespect to Kelly. It's just saying like we're enough, right? Like we're just enough. But again, for fans of that song and also for fans of the phrase, like that's not exactly what we're talking about this time. Although I admit, I still get nervous when I see shirts like this. I'm strong enough to do this. I'm knowledgeable enough to do this. I'm prepared enough to do this. I am mature. I am brave enough to do this. Okay, like, I guess, I guess you are. You're like, yeah. Like, you just walk by someone in that shirt. You're like, go for it. I don't know what you're doing, but, like, yes. But when I think about, like, the weight that gives, like, what you feel like you need to do now, man, I'm not going to put joy in that onesie. Like, if it's about her pooping, maybe. But, like, anything else, I'm like, I'm just not going to do that to her that early. Like, I'll probably, unfortunately, mess her up in other ways, but, like, not through that onesie. That's not going to happen. But I am enough is a little different than we should be enough. That should be enough stings for me. Because it comes in sort of, like, the sneakiest ways. We should be enough. Who says that? Unfortunately, I feel like it can be anyone and everyone that has an agenda for us, a standard for us. Maybe it's our parents, maybe it's our bosses, maybe it's our friends. Even you think about the American myth of the self-made man or woman. You should be enough. You, you don't have it together? You haven't picked yourself up by your bootstraps? And unfortunately, I think that's seeped deep down in us. Like in our society, in our culture. When we see something that's off with us, that's wrong, where there's lack, we just wonder not who could help, how could God provide, but instead we look in, man, I should be enough. I didn't get it right this day. I'm not enough yet. I still have failed. We don't look outward to receive help from others, whether or not we believe in God or not. We often look inward to this, why didn't I get it right this time? We become the problem. Not the system, not the fact that we could ask for help, not our community, it's us. I just should be enough. And sometimes when we look at ourselves in the mirror, that's what we feel. That's what we see. I should be enough. It's a phrase that leaves us behind before we even begin. Maybe some of you actually feel something as I say that phrase, like you've felt that before whether it's in your marriage, whether it's about who you are as a person, some goals that you've been trying to accomplish but you've struggled with, maybe that's a personal phrase for you. Maybe you even said it today, I, I should be enough. It's a phrase that leaves us behind before we begin and it lets a certain set of rules for what it means to be enough rule our lives. It's a way, a way I don't think is the best way. The way of Jesus is different. It doesn't start with the posture of feeling that we should be enough. It actually begins with the posture that we aren't enough. Like it's just a fundamental truth of the story of Jesus. We aren't enough. Not me, not you, 
not all of us together, we're not enough, that we need God. It's sort of offensive. It stings, but in a different kind of way. But there's also something true to that sting that we can go to Jesus with this thought that we're not enough and confess to God, to share how we're not enough with God and receive help, to even share that with one another. Thankfully, we see that same posture in the Jesus story and specifically in the beginnings of ministry. The sense that we're not enough, but there's a way that Jesus invites us to go deeper. We see this specifically in the first chapter of Mark, the first gospel ever recorded. These are some of the first words were written down about this person of Jesus. We're going to take a journey through these verses. They're kind of vignettes, short little stories, about 15 verses. We're going to look at them today to see different scenes that demonstrate this, that help us know that it's not the lie that we're enough, that we should be enough, that needs to rule over us, but there's a different way that is for us. And this first scene is Jesus' cousin kind of fomenting a revolutionary movement where posturing and performing are replaced with an authentic connection with God. Where performance gets to cease, where striving gets to cease, and something quite different becomes the norm of the day. An opportunity that we see the Lord providing for a certain people. So we're going to read that right now. This is from the Gospel of Mark, if you want to follow along. It's the first verse. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him. And were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locust and wild honey. He proclaimed, the one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The beginning of the story of Jesus Already there's a lot of stuff at foot. You have this game, maybe of sacred telephone, right, where a prophet named Isaiah said there's going to be a messenger who will cry out in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord. And then Mark records that messenger, John the Baptist, as he proclaims a baptism of repentance, a baptism that involves the forgiveness of sins. But even as he prepares the way with these things, he says something greater is coming. It's not just going to be a baptism of water, but of spirit. Not only did John invite through proclamation, but we see his proclamation had fruitfulness to it. It says that all of the Judean countryside went, the whole of Jerusalem. Mark is very economic with his language, but these words matter. People went out to the wilderness to find what was going on. It seems like they were looking for something new. They wanted something different than what they had. And they went to the water, to the Jordan, and they found this free offer to confess and to be cleansed. Now, this is the gospel starting off with a bang. It's city slickers and rural hillbillies coming together, drawn out of their normal environments for the sake of this newness and change that's offered in the water. 
They weren't enough. They needed something more. They needed to turn to change their mind to ask for forgiveness. And just so we know the context, baptism wasn't really a thing in the way that it is now. There was something of water purification where when there was an outward defilement for the Jewish people, you would go to a priest to be cleansed. So there was water in a sacred ritual, but it was always for this outward defilement, for something that happened to you that was very uh, obvious. It wasn't for an internal wrong. Or maybe not even a specific wrong, but just a feeling of, I want to get right with God. I want to feel cleansed on the inside. And all of a sudden, this was offered in kind of like a spiritual revolutionary practice. John's saying, let's just call it baptism. Let's do this work by the water. John was giving a practice for people to say, you know what, I'm not enough. And droves and droves of people came to the water, different kinds of people, countryside and city, poor and rich, coming together in the same water to say, look, it's not just that I'm not enough, but we're not enough. And we need to be with God. Due to an unexpected and wild move of God, people were freely coming, saying that they needed to turn, to repent, remember, and to be forgiven by God. This is the first truth when the lie of we should be enough faces us. The truth is that God is our change agent, not us. These folks were going to the water looking for something, looking for change, being told by John, change your mind. Come into the water, get cleansed, get freed. What if it's that simple? We'll get to that. But what if it's that simple? And people followed. They said, we're not enough. We're willing to take you up on this offer, John. And this is good news for us if we're open to our need for change and are willing to let God, not ourselves or any other system, be our primary change agent. If we're looking for change anywhere other than God, there's some uh, concern we should have because it usually comes at a cost, a cost that's too high to pay. But this is a free form of transformation. And it's always surprising to me how this welcome is good news to some and upsetting news for others. You know, as I realized late in college, I was like, uh-oh, something's happening. I don't know what's going on. I think I might be called to ministry. This is crazy. As that was happening to me, God whispered something to me that was really important for me to hold on to. And it was something like, I can't remember the exact phrase, but it was something like, stay with those who find themselves poor. There's protection there. And I wondered what that was about. And I was like thinking, maybe it's just because I'm motivated to um, help or serve, or I like being kind of with or among the marginalized. Like, I, I kind of thought for a little bit, maybe that's it. Like, this is just like the work, kind of like the work I like to do. But, you know, about 12 years later, I can say that definitely wasn't it. It was the fact that there's protection being around people that see their need more clearly than most. Whose maybe desperation or whose clarity of circumstance drives them to be sincere. Not only drives them, it kind of forces them to in a way that's humbling for themselves, but anyone else that spends time around them. I realized something in that. Because I realize that it's easy for me to say I need God, but sometimes I see it in action. I realize my words really weren't those. It wasn't that statement. I said I needed God, but I really just said that. Even if following Jesus is incredibly difficult, 
in the throes of something like addiction or material poverty, systematic oppression, when I've been alongside my brothers and sisters experiencing that kind of life, there's something that they say that's very easy for them to say, which is, I need God. It's not that I'm expecting my life to be changed tomorrow, but I need God, even in the throes of all these things. I know I shouldn't be enough on my own. I can't be enough on my own. I need God. I need repentance. I need this opportunity to turn because I'm not getting it from other people. I'm not getting it from a system. I'm not getting it from anyone's compassion. So maybe I can get it from God. I need to experience forgiveness. I can feel as myself that I certainly should be enough. There's some things I have confidence in, whether I'd like to admit it or not. Confidence in degrees I've received, in a wife to ground me, a mission that I feel is clear, a community that's around me. I can feel like I'm somebody, but just because of what I have, or at least what I think I have. Shouldn't that be enough, right? Shouldn't I have it all together? That's the trap I can fall into. When I look at my surroundings, I'm like, well, but I should be enough, though, right? Like, I have the things that I need to be enough. I don't know why I'm not enough, but I, I have what I need, right? Or at least I'm about to. Something I'll come back to a little bit later in the talk is something that my parents said to me as a kid that God loved them, I love them, but was really hard for me probably to hold on to then, and it's hard for me to still hold on to now, which is, as a black man in America, I need to work twice as hard for half as much. Some of you have similar things, maybe because of your ethnicity. Some of you just have it because of your kind of story of origin or family, that there's kind of a, a thing that you had to do, maybe a foundational lie for you, and that was one of mine. So if I work four times as hard, I'll be good then, right? Sometimes we can feel like we should be enough just because someone, even people who love us, have given us a qua an equation that we think we can solve, that we think we can perform, that we think we can do. Like, there's work, right? But we can do that. Like, I can make that be the way I'm okay or I'm enough. And we buy it time and time again, hook, line, and sinker. So when God told me to spend time with those who find themselves poor, saying they'll protect you, God was letting me realize that often people who find themselves in desperate need have a way into the kingdom without pretense without performance, without the weight of what they should do, just the clarity of, I know I'm not enough, and I want help. I need a God that's with me. There is a God who's a change agent, and I'm looking for change today, and I think maybe that's part of the reason why you're here, is that you're looking for change too. It's just that clear. You know, this is one of the things I love about going to uh, jail Bible study almost every week, because we looked at this passage, the passage about baptism, and there was hunger in the room, a desire to turn, even when there was the fear of still doing the same wrong thing, some wrong things that maybe got them there. But there was a hunger to turn, to change, to at least present ourselves before God, to offer confession, to seek repentance, to receive forgiveness, and just hope, God, would you do something tonight? that would make things really different in our lives. Like there was like an electric hunger for that because that sincere offer meant something for them. It meant something for me. It meant something for us in the room because we had some reality. We do need to change. Maybe we don't like where we are. We feel like lies are ensnaring us. What can change that?
who can help us from that? We don't have to rest with the lie that we should be enough. There is a God who says, I'm enough, and extends his hand. Baptism, both the act itself and the meaning of the spiritual invitation, it humbles us. It draws the city and country alike, the rich and poor alike, the criminals who have been caught and those that haven't. We become one in the water, united by our bowing down to God, the God who is our change agent. When you think about that, like this person of who God is, and even this way forward of repentance, of confession, of forgiveness, where do you desire that in your life? Where do you feel like you need that? Maybe that would unstuck you. Where is it? I believe God's here in this room, like drawing that out, desiring us to like encounter the one who is truth. And that's what was happening, I think, in the countryside. That's what was happening in Jerusalem. There was this electricity around what was happening in the wilderness by the water. But that same thing is true today. Back in Mark's story, the way of needing God is modeled by someone that's not just poor by stature, uh, but poor by choice. The choice that he made in his life to come down to be with us. When Jesus gets on the scene in this passage, his own gospel, he makes a surprising choice that lets us know once again that we should be enough as a way of living is a lie because we see how Jesus models things for us. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. You know, I just shared how baptism is declaring your need for God, repenting for your sins, seeking forgiveness, looking to turn. And here we see Jesus, like perfect, sinless Jesus, step up to the plate and say, I'd like to be baptized, please. Why? Why in the world? What is Jesus doing here? And it turns out that God is not a far-off change agent, like one that like promotes that or maybe is about that, but then we just can't access him. I think some of us might experience God like that sometimes. I know you say this, but not for me, right? I can't really work hard enough to get to you. Like, you're kind of far off. It's, you're a little bit not accessible to me. It turns out that God isn't a far-off change agent, but Jesus reveals that he is our change agent. He's standing in solidarity with us, saying, if y'all need to go under, I'll go under. If y'all need to go low, I'll go low with you. I'll submerge myself. I'll get cleansed too. Whatever I have to do to be with you, I've signed up to do it. If you think you're too high and mighty for confession, for repentance, and forgiveness, just look at Jesus. He says, no, I'm going to go under. I'm going to get baptized too. Watching God in the flesh get right before the Lord, before God, that's a bit scandalous, right? A little bit theologically confusing for us, right? If you don't think you need this way, look again to Jesus because he says something through his demonstration, through his action. And then watch what God does. We see God back Jesus up from this act of humility, saying, you are my son, my beloved. With you I am well pleased. 
well-pleased before Jesus starts his ministry, before he's healed anyone, before he's given a famous teaching, before he picked a disciple, before he died for anyone's sins, let alone the sins of the world. Barely as he is up out of the water, the voice of God says, you are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well-pleased. What radical affirmation of Jesus' belovedness, not performance, not his ministry, not his obedience, not anything specific about him, just an affirmation of how much Jesus is loved by God. It can almost make you think that everyone that went in the water that day heard something kind of like that, right? That it wasn't just Jesus, that like everyone kind of had this moment, maybe like people like recorded that later, this kind of like, this is not like the text, right? So I'm just imagining here, just so you know. Like everyone's like, yeah, and like after you got baptized, didn't you hear that thing? Like your son, I was like, wait, he said that to you too? It's almost like that's how much love God has. That's how loved people felt that when they went under, they heard this. And let's say they didn't hear that. That's what Jesus is fighting for. That's the connection to the Father that Jesus wants for us. To know that we're loved without doing anything, anything at all. He's connecting us back to the Father who says, I love you, before our journey of should do, shouldn't do, ought to do, oughtn't do, even begins. Us giving up the lie that we should be powerful, that we should be enough, is a powerful act of joining our lives together with this God who invites us to confess, to turn, to seek forgiveness, to change our mind. Not even to do those things so that God loves us, but so we'll really experience the power of his love. The actions don't like get us love, they don't earn us love. The actions reveal how much God already loved us all along. Maybe for some of you this feels too innocent or too glib, like too Pollyanna. And I understand that. Like that refreshing dip almost sounds too good to be true. In the next part of our story, I think we can understand a little bit why we might think that. Because if this is the grounds where Jesus gets his power from, his identity from, his security, his dependence, I think it means that there's an all-out assault on those things. And even the simple reality that what if knowing that we're loved is enough? Like if it's true that that's where Jesus kind of really becomes the person of Jesus, it would make sense that that's where we would get attacked if we have, let's say, a living enemy. One who's trying to convince us that we're not a son or a daughter. Let's see what happens right after this passage. Mark is fast, right? So it says, And spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. The spirit didn't lead Jesus to like this divine party in heaven. It's like, you're loved, you're amazing, let's go. Like, that's not what Jesus got. The next verse And the Spirit immediately led him, drove him into the wilderness. The Spirit led Jesus to temptation in the wilderness. Forty days to be tempted by Satan. I'm not going to try to answer the question of why. I don't know. That's just what we see happen. But what was Satan attacking? It's the core narrative that Jesus' identity, security, and dependence comes from God. Jesus is a son. He's loved. And he's already pleased his father before doing anything. His identity, his security, his dependence. A child of God. Knowing God loves him. 
already pleased with his existence before anything. His work could come out of not performance, but out of an overflow of God's love for him. Satan wanted to attack Jesus on those grounds, and we know in other accounts how this works out. If you want to read this later, it's in Matthew 4. A loss of identity on the grounds of meeting material needs, a loss of identity on the grounds of the opinions of others, fighting for kind of how others would see him, and then really giving in to saying, I don't know if the inheritance that God has for me is enough. I'll take your inheritance. But at each turn, Jesus resists because his identity, his security, and his dependence are all with God. And with that, what happens? Angels wait on him. Jesus again gets otherworldly support by living a different way, by attaching himself to this other world, not the way of this one. Our second truth, God is with us in the temptation of our identity. Maybe sometimes we think this is too innocent, too glib, but when we think about it, we're like, oh, maybe there's some reasons why I struggle with experiencing God's love or feeling that love is for me. Like, what if there's an enemy that's been attacking that? Because that's actually where you become powerful, where you have identity and security and dependence in Christ. What if our relationship with God was never, be, was never meant to be founded upon our obedience, upon our track record of success, upon our identity as the right kind of person or believing the right kinds of things about God? What if our relationship with God was always meant to be an antidote to the lie that we should be enough, a way out of that trap, like a way of just kind of anchoring us again, tethering us again, to who God is, and that we're a child of God. And what if the simple way out is powerful enough, and that's likely why the enemy spent so much time attacking our sense of identity and security and dependence, through ways that lure you into other kinds of striving based on maybe material needs that you have, like real tangible things that not only do you want, but you actually need for life. And the enemy kind of jostles you there in that place. Maybe it's through striving based on the thoughts of others, how you fit in with others, whether you feel right with them, good with them, at peace with them, and the enemy kind of jostles and bounces you around that place. Perhaps it's through striving based on a false inheritance, something you believe you should have. Perhaps it's that American dream. Well, everyone else gets it. Why can't I? Maybe it's that a promotion, the thing in your family. Right? I know that people have this, and shouldn't I get it? You think that somehow you'll receive a set of goods that will make you feel something better than just being beloved. We all fall for this, and the way out remains the same. But many of us just believe in these sets of lies, the first of which I think is our way down to the spiral. I should be enough. We can run on these lies. Think about how that's been true in my life, both with this foundational lie of you work twice as hard for half as much, which gets me to a pattern of overworking, of overperforming. Uh, another lie that's kind of been foundational, that some of the things I care about so much, like reconciliation, whether it's between class or between ethnicity, it's so crazy, it's so messy that I have to look kind of like I'm together because I care about, I'm invested in these crazy dreams. I can't be crazy myself, right? I gotta at least appear like I'm a little bit like a normal person. Like if I just keep it together, then maybe I can keep like kind of fighting for these dreams. And the last one, just based on some family of origin stuff that, and I think uh, unfortunately a lot of pastors uh, struggle with this one, just to be honest. This sense of uh, I've served somehow 
uh, someone, for in my case it's my family, at such a young age in such a specific way uh, that it's serving to the point of hurt. Right? Having, for me, it came just having to make a decision about my own well-being too early. So kind of was like, okay, maybe I can just keep serving, but it, it, it hurt me. Unfortunately, those are like plates, you know, in my heart. The kind of the plates that keep spinning and spinning and spinning. I'm just kind of waiting for them to crash. It's things that are just going on overdrive. And we all have something like that inside us. And usually a lie or a series of lies fuels that. And then we break somehow. This is familiar to me. We've talked a little bit this year about this story uh, that happened when I was 27. I think Matt shared about it, and I, I don't know the last time I shared about it. Uh, when I became lead pastor of this church, and within three weeks, the, the building that we were in could not be there anymore, and we had to find a space to meet within a three-week period. And I think it was Matt that was sharing. It, it, that was something that de definitely affected me, obviously. That was very stressful. But there were other things going on in that time, too. I am now leading this community. I'm, I'm struggling with what's the way forward. There's a lot of hopes that I feel like I put on myself, but also people have put on me for the church to, to look like something, to be like something, for this vision of reconciliation I have in my heart to then just kind of appear in a congregation, like as if it was a painting. And I bought that pressure. I lived into that pressure of like, I think I need to just get it right. I need to work harder. I need to, to fix something while trying to get a building. It wasn't a happy time for me. And one time, I was driving Tina to work. She had just taken uh, a job as a, a lawyer, a corporate lawyer at a, a law firm in town. So she was busy like she hasn't really been before. And things were hard. Things were stressful. And we got into a fight uh, right before we got into the car. People know how this works, right? You're, like, you're about to go somewhere. The fight starts like the second before you leave, like as you're getting your shoes. It's like the fight somehow attached to like getting like your last shoe on. It started. And it just kept going. And we said things that we regretted, but more than anything, I just felt this burden of, but I, I should be able to handle this. And then this is gonna be in a later sermon, but like, and like, can't you help me like handle this? Like, I can do it, but like, I need you, but I don't, but I need, like, it was bad. It was kind of an ugliness coming out in me. And the anxiety was high. And then I uh, got close to the place. You know, sometimes like you're driving and you want to get there, but you don't want to get there because you're like, I kind of feel like we need to like have some kind of peacemaking before this is done, but I, the building's right there and we don't seem close to peace at all, so what's going to happen? And then there was just the silence of being stuck, of not having anything figured out, and just the weight of, I should know how to do this. Like, I should have figured this out. I should be enough for this. And then in a moment of anxiety, all I could do was sing out this song from Psalm 23. God is my shepherd, I won't be wanting, I won't be wanting. And probably at that point, I think it maybe was when Tina joined me too, I just completely broke and just cried. Because somehow, even though I felt God moving in my life, even though I felt God's purposes around me, I got caught once again in believing that I should be enough to do something that God actually called me to do, that I should be enough to honor vows in my marriage that God actually was the one that was my witness on. I said I could only do it through him, that somehow I thought that I should be enough for all these things that are only possible because of God. And in singing 
with Tina, I realized I'm not enough. Not at all. And she sang with me, so thankfully I wasn't alone. But more than either of us, I knew that God was in that car, was in that room, and was encouraging me. Yeah, God, oh, yeah, yeah, you're not enough. But I'm here, and I'm with you. And I loved you before you ever began this journey that you think you're on. A journey that we definitely have some talking to do about. But like, I'm with you in it. What if the breakdowns of our lives are simply the roadmaps back to the simple and truest reality? Like the times in our life where things, like, things aren't working out, we finally kind of quit pretending or we're forced to quit pretending, and it's just like the raw, real stuff of life. What if those are the moments where the, the, like the signals for the road are clear, like, turn, change your mind, like give in to this God of love who loved you before your struggle with whatever you're struggling with ever began? What if it is that simple? That we're already loved before we've done anything, and it's love that makes us somebody, that we actually shouldn't be enough on our own, but we're enough with that love anchoring us. So where do we end today? I want to end with Mark's last words. The last two verses. These are the ver first words of Jesus' public ministry. After this time of baptism, after this time of being in the wilderness, this is what Jesus says to us. It's what he says to his community of people. They haven't really even become a community yet. But these are his words. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Jesus saying the time is now. The kingdom of God, God's rule and reign in the world has come. And it's close to us. Just change your mind and believe in the good news. If you've been wondering how is it possible that a simple I love you from God could defeat the lies of the world, it's this that there's kingdom power behind it, God's rule and reign behind it, that it's chasing us down, that it's trying to find us where the lies are ensnaring us. The kingdom is doing work against those lies. It's not just our movement towards God. It's the kingdom's movement towards us. This is before Jesus died on the cross. It's before Jesus did a famous teaching. He's simply just pointing out a new reality. Look, there it is, the kingdom of God. It's coming near. It's chasing you. It's finding you. It's a good time to turn. Like, really. It's actually a quite good time. Do you want to? God's love is waiting to rush into our lives. And this third and last point is just that we have a kingdom not of our own making that's near us, that's coming. Not through us, not even through our desires, but just because it's what God is doing in the world today. And it's not a kingdom that we've designed. It's from God. That's the kingdom that we'll be waiting for this Lent. Because sometimes it's a slow kingdom that comes into our lives. Sometimes it is fast. But sometimes it's simply orienting ourselves. Saying, well, if this kingdom is near, then how about I confess and share the real things that are going on in my life? How about I repent? I turn, especially in places where I'm stuck. And then I ask God, and even ask others for forgiveness, to have a new way. And again, there's not a way that 
things change overnight, but there's a way that I think we do feel freer overnight or feel less stuck or feel at least like we're on a journey with this God who loves us instead of rules or standards or just that deep despair we can sometimes feel when we know, when we think that we should be enough and no one else is involved. I want to invite us to reflect in two different ways uh, before I close and the worship team can come up. The first is just a reminder. Some, some of these will be uh, things we've seen before. Some things I think a few will be new. Just of Lenten practices we have together. And then one is just one simple invitation. So the Lenten practices, some of the things you've heard are the evening pro, uh, program we're doing, Going Deeper with Lent, the simple dinner, fasting meet on Friday, and feasting in community. One thing we mentioned last week, but not this week, is uh, there's a habit we want to be in this uh, Lent of not shopping online. Why? Why is that important? How is that connected? Uh, sometimes we find that through ease of connection, through ease of convenience, we support things that actually a slowing down helps us just to realize more, oh, like there's something else than just what I want right now, kind of like a making of the kingdom, like our own kingdom. So if you have questions about that, talk to Patrick. If you have questions about that, talk to any of the staff. Uh, it, it's just a habit we're trying to be in. Another thing we're anchoring ourselves to, to see how can we live in this 40 days in ways that stretch us, but actually hope that stretching brings us closer to God, not farther away. And the last thing, it's the first thing on there. It's just a breath prayer. It's a simple practice where we just pray something like, Jesus, reveal your truth to me. Just slowing down, getting comfortable, breathing in Jesus, breathing out, reveal your truth to me. Jesus, reveal your truth to me. Just a daily practice forever long you'd like, just to get centered on trusting in truth, believing in truth. The last uh, reflection is just, where do you need to confess sin to repent and to receive forgiveness? Just a simple invitation of the scripture. Where do you need that today? In our remaining time, what we're going to do is we're going to have communion, which is a meal that we celebrate, uh, where we actually have changed our mind about uh, the, the awfulness, right, of the cross. Like, we know that it's a horrible event of Jesus' life, but we actually change our mind. We actually think differently and think this is something to remember and to even celebrate because of what the work on the cross does. Getting us connected back to Jesus, getting us connected to the Father. We're going to take the bread, eat it, the body of Christ, and, and then dip it into uh, the juice, the, the blood of Jesus shed for us. And in this meal together, we're asking God to help us to to see rightly, uh, to be connected with him in a deeper way. We're going to worship through music, ask God's presence to be here with us, God's spirit to be here. We're going to take a time to pray where we can either confess sin, if we'd like to do that, or to ask God, God, would you give me a desire to change the courage to say that I want to repent, I want it to turn. These are the kind of invitations that God has for us. I want to pray for the spirit to be present. The communion servers can come up so that table is ready. Let me pray for us as we transition. God, I thank you for who you are and for what you're doing. Lord, I pray that you would bless the elements, that they would indeed change us, that you would bless this time of musical worship, that we would seek you and find you, and that we would experience you in prayer, that the words that have been proclaimed through your scripture and through this message would be demonstrated by your Holy Spirit. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.